be able to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28 is kind of where we're picking up uh, with the continued overview of our study. And as you're turning there, just kind of quick review, you know, God has you know, delivered and brought Israel to himself, you know, with his mighty, powerful hand. And he's manifested, he's shown himself to the nation in ways to instill a steadfast fear. He has ratified the covenant that you know, he is making or has made with his chosen children. And he's, he is giving them laws, laws that sanctify them as a people of God. That set them apart as his chosen nation. And the people were expected to you know, rise to that occasion and do all that Jehovah had commanded. Very quickly, I wanted to ask four questions from the question sheet pertaining to what we covered last week. Uh, and so if you have that, you can, uh, you can look at that. You know, pulling from chapter 25, you know, one of the questions is, how is Moses going to assure that everything associated with the tabernacle was done correctly? So how is Moses going to make sure that's done right? Anybody? pattern. He's going to follow the pattern. He's going to make sure that they know that pattern. So he's going to show the pattern that God had given him. And God, you know, a number of times emphasized that. You know, I'm giving this to you. I'm showing this to you. Do it. You know, you adhere to the pattern that I've shown you. Uh, in that section, there's a number of different, you know, items that, you know, we really didn't cover specifically. But you know, one of the questions, also from chapter 25, is what was the significance of the mercy seat on top of the ark? What was the significance of the mercy seat on top of the ark? Anybody? That's where God would meet with them, or particularly with Moses, uh, we are told, and God would speak to Moses from there. And of course, later on, as the priesthood and everything is set up and what God has directed them to do is in effect and working, you know, you recall, it will be there that the high priest once a year will enter into the most holy place and sprinkle, you know, blood from the atonement sacrifice on the mercy seat uh, as God, part of God's pattern of showing his mercy and forgiveness to the people. Uh, from chapter 26, from chapter 26, uh, what did the veil of blue, purple, and scarlet serve? For what did the veil of blue, purple, and scarlet serve? What was that veil there for? Someone say it. Right. It, it was to separate between the holy place and the most holy place. And you think about that idea, the separating of, the, of that, the partitioning of those, you know, of those two uh, areas of the holy tent of God. Uh, I would suggest to you it illustrates you know, the idea, as long as that veil is there, you know, the access to God is limited. And so God put a veil there until the, the perfect one would come, and he would be the veil and men, all men would have access to the most holy place to 
God. Last question as a review, you know, taken from chapter 27, you know, what was the perpetual statute which the high priest had to maintain outside the veil? I've got the wrong word in my question here. <laughs> That's why I slowed down there. What, what, what was the perpetual statute which the high priest had to maintain outside the veil? Or something placed outside the veil. What was it? Okay, in the incense, what else? Outside the veil? The lamp. And so it talks about how the lighting of the lamp is going to be a perpetual statute. You know, and so you know, that you know, ritual, that service, that ministry was part of God's pattern. You know, to, you know, and it was a very important part as you think of, of you know, that light you know, enlightening you know, the dwelling of God. So with that said, let's kind of move on into our, our section now that focuses primarily on uh, the, the clothing of the priesthood and things associated with that. All of this is still part of God's pattern you know, that is being revealed to them, you know, actually to Moses and then to the people. Uh, Moses is up on the mountain receiving this from God. Remember how, how many days and nights was he there? Forty. And so as, as we're reading all of this, you know, Moses is in the presence of God. He's in that ominous you know, cloud upon the mountain that is burning like a fiery furnace. That's where Moses and God is speaking to him. And so chapter 28 begins by telling Moses you know, in regard to what he needs to do in regard to the priest or the priesthood that is being set up. And he talks about how, you know, you need to you know, select Aaron and his sons, uh, and they're going to be the ones who are going to minister to me as priest. I think it's significant to, to see this, consider very briefly this idea, the concept of God chose specifically who would be his priest. And these priests had a job to do. It was to minister, and it was to minister to God. If you think of the word minister, and even our language has to do with service, has to do with work on behalf of someone else. And so God is going to you know, set this up. This is part of the pattern, the plan that Moses has to teach and make sure is adhered to. I think what's interesting as you get into this without getting kind of too you know, lost in all the details of what... Uh, God is revealing is just the idea that you have this ministry of the priesthood, this sanctified office, this sanctified role that God is setting up, you know, and it's going to be through Aaron's family. And chapter 28 emphasizes clothing. It doesn't, it, 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 you know, chapter 28 doesn't say a whole lot about what they're doing. It, it all talks about clothing. And that should kind of make you stop and ponder. When you think about here are God's sanctified priests. And part of the ministry is this concept, is this principle that with that role, with that office, with that ministry, what is also required is there is an appropriate way to dress when you come before God. In verse 2 and verse 40, it talks about how, you know, as God is going to give instruction, he says, 
these garments, these holy, this holy sanctified clothing that Aaron's going to wear, and then the sons will wear, you know, each, you know, God's got all these different instructions. He says, and they are for glory and beauty. And so God is setting up this ministry to be carried out by a sanctified priesthood is, who's going to be you know, you know, from a very specific family that God has chosen. And he says, okay, and this is what I want you to wear when you, when you come and serve and minister to me on behalf of the nation. And so like I said, I don't want to spend time to kind of go all the way through this and have all the, uh, you know, the different makeup of uh, the, the tunic or the ephod or the turban, all of that. You can read that and understand you know, that you know, well. But I think there is this idea when you think about God and he says, okay, I want you, I want you, you, know, I want you to go get, pick these men and this is what I want, want, want first of all, I want you to make their clothes for them. Because there's going to be a proper attire that I'm going to expect of them to wear when they come before me in this holy tent. And you just think about that, I, you know, a ministry, you know, you know, any kind of ministry, generally, you know, there, you know, the nature of the ministry and the purpose of the ministry affects your clothing. Think about jobs that have unique clothing. Why should we think, you know, when you think about the priesthood of, of long ago, and God says, I want them to wear clothing, first of all, that is appropriate expressions of what their role is all about and who it is for. And so God you know, sets this apart and communicates you know, to them all these different kind of things that you know, have to be made with craftsmanship. I mean, this is, you know, you know you're just not going to the, the, you know, the fabric store and say, oh, I'll pick this because I like this color. No, God said this, these colors, these things, this is how you weave it, this is how you put it together. And he goes, he's, he's into detail. And, he, and the reason why? Because this is a sanctified ministry. This is a ministry that's going to be to me and before me. And it needs to be of a nature that expresses beauty and glory. And so the Holy One, yes, is to be worshipped, but the Holy One is to be worshipped in proper attire. Part of this that's brought out as well, when you get you know, later on in chapter 28, not only the idea of the glory and the beauty that is being expressed in that, but associated with this also is the concept of not exposing one's nakedness. And so later on in chapter 28, it talks about undergarments that are to be worn you know, under the tunic. And, and, and the reason why is so that a man's nakedness would not be exposed. Early on, that was briefly touched on back in chapter 20 and verse 26 when talking about, okay, on altars, there are not to be steps. You know, you know, there are not to be steps so that the nakedness you know, would not be Exposed. And so you think two things are brought up. One is the sense modesty from the standpoint of what's appropriate for, for the one that you are worshiping. You know, modesty is not just about abstaining from immodesty. You know, something that's, you know, there's the idea, of, okay, it needs to be appropriate for what the work's all about, for the ministry that you're being called to do. 
And so it needs to express glory, it needs to express beauty, but at the same time, but we must not forget also, there is a sense of appropriateness as well as a covering up your nakedness. And so this whole chapter is all about that. All about the proper attire for the priest. And to us, it may seem somewhat, oh, this is tedious. <laughs> we don't do this. You know, you know, this doesn't apply to us. You know, but I think there's a spiritual concept that perhaps we could ponder and you can just take home with you a little bit. And that is you think about how you and I are a priesthood. We're not of this priesthood that you know, Moses is going to direct the nation of Israel to you know, set up according to God's pattern and plan and word. But we're part of a priesthood and it's the priesthood of Christ. And so that's brought out. Pretty plainly in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and, and verse 9, talks about us being a holy priesthood, us being a royal priesthood. You think about the nation of Israel. They were a redeemed nation. God purchased them. He redeemed them from their captivity, and he is making them into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19, verse 6. When God kind of presents and offers the covenant to them. He says, this is what I've done, and this is what you will be to me. And you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And, and they agree to that. And so then God begins then to reveal his laws, his commandments, his pattern that is going to sanctify them as a people, but also is going to appropriately allow them to show sanctification toward God. Well, we too are redeemed people. We're redeemed in Christ. We're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We are heirs of Abraham's promise. You know, we are the spiritual Israel. And we too, Revelation 1.6, we too are a kingdom of priests. And so, you know, the, the, you, know you think of this idea, a priesthood is designed, it exists for service, it exists for ministry. Jesus, you know, I mean, Jesus, God, the Father, set aside Aaron and his sons and the descendants to be the priesthood that would minister to God on behalf of the people. Well, we are Christ's priesthood, redeemed to become a kingdom of priests, and we exist to minister. We exist to serve. And so, therefore, every Christian ought to see himself as a ministering priest to God in holiness. We should see ourselves that way. We may not always see ourselves all the time that way, but we need to be reminded that's what we are. You know, this priesthood of the old law, the priesthood of the first covenant, and all of the, the details of the pattern, you know, foreshadow great spiritual principles and concepts. That we are to learn and consider and apply in our own walk with God and in Jesus Christ. Think of the idea when we are called be holy. Why? Well, we are to be holy because God is holy. But in, in what way should we be holy? He said we are to be holy in all our conduct. And attire, clothing, is part of our conduct. It is part of who we are. It is part of how we communicate holiness. And so, yes, we need, to, we need to temper our clothing in such a way that it 
covers our nakedness, yes. But if we're a priesthood, it, sh it should be more than just that when we consider what we wear. You know, we should present ourselves as people who are to express glory and beauty to God. We have a holy calling and we have a holy ministry. And so you think about, you know, how we minister as, as servants of Jesus Christ and all the different facets of, of, of serving that we do. And each ministry has a different attire, in a sense. You know, what, what you are wear this Saturday when you come to, on work day here on the grounds to clean things up, well, it will be attire appropriate for the job. And you think about all the things we do as Christians and that our, you know, we need to consider, is our clothing appropriate for the task that we're called to do? And worship is something that we need to consider. Is my clothing appropriate for the worship I am bringing to God? God expected the priesthood to, to, to be adorned and clothed in a manner that was beautiful and glorious. Now, Christ has not specified, you know, what you have to wear. And so we cannot speak where God has not, has not spoken. But I think there's a principle here. We are a kingdom of priests called to minister to God in all these different facets. And what we wear when we come to worship him should not be carelessly, you know, not considered. And so you think of a passage like 1 Timothy 2, you know, and it's in the context of holiness. Men are told to lift up hands in holy prayer. And women are particularly said, you know, consider your attire as a profession of godliness. That's, that's the tone. That's the, back, that's the backbone and the backdrop of all of the particular applications there is holiness and godliness. And those principles apply across the board in worship, but also not in worship. And we've got to consider those things because in Christ, you and I are. We, we are blessed to be part of a kingdom of priests that are to be communicating his holiness. Anybody want to maybe add some thoughts in that line of discussion? Anyone? Anybody? Carrie. couldn't help but think about uh, Revelation chapter 7, mm -hmm. uh, where you've got the picture of the multitude of Gentiles before the throne. So I guess I'm taking maybe that clothing to the next level. Right. More of a spiritual application. Yes. Because these, this multitude are before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And when John is asking, who are these people, then in verse... Um, 14, well, I'll start in verse 13. One of the elders answered and said to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they, where are they from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So when you take, talk about us being priests, which is Revelation 1, mm -hmm. then we are clothed in this white robe that 
been made white by the Lamb. And this tribulation we go through, and we go through, you know, difficulties, and we, we serve as priests, we serve one another, we love one another, we love Christ, so we have this servant attitude that our clothing, yeah, there's an application from a physical perspective, <laughs> but I think the bigger application is, as priests, we have a totally different way that we are clothed spiritually from the world. I think a good, good, good point to bring out. And I think if you carry that thought, you see, you know, you know later on you know, in Leviticus when you know, Aaron's sons, uh, you know, where, you know, they may have been attired in the physical sense, you know, with the right tunic and the right turban, but spiritually, you know, they were not. They were not attired in in the ministry properly, and so I think. Yeah, I think that's a good point to bring out. First Peter chapter five speaks of. Um, now I'm forgetting. Um, of the oh dear, it speaks of the. Let me. I don't have my Bible with me this evening, and that's a serious, <laughs> serious handicap. Um, oh yes, I'm sorry. Uh, we're all to be clothed with humility. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of ways. Oh, and then fi yeah, finally, Ephesians chapter five. Is maybe maybe the one that makes it so clear um, the comparison between the priest garments and ours. He says he's speaking of Christ in the church. Oh boy, um, causing them oh, to yeah to be presented to himself without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing. Mm -hmm. So th those are obviously clothing references. I haven't spilled anything on my. Pure garments. So as you're saying, it all relates to the holiness and the purity that we're expected to have. Thank you very much. Anyone else? Add to those? We could just kind of look at some other aspects of, of, of the clothing, specifically in chapter 28. You know, you know, we were told you know, that the high priest bore the names of the sons of Israel for a memorial before the Lord. Talking about the you know, two onyx stones that had you know, the, the names of the sons of Israel in six on one and six on the other in, in proper birth, birth order. And then also you have you know, talked about the breastplate of judgment and that you know, breastplate you know, consisted of 12 different precious stones, you know, which were engraved each with one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So, you know, so God talked about how these things would be a memorial before the Lord. And so what do you think is the significance 
of the sons and the tribes of Israel being memorialized before God. He says, you know, this is going to, you know, you're going to, you're, you're going to wear it on your shoulder, and you're going to wear it on your heart. He says, because this is a memorial before the Lord. So what do you think could perhaps be the significance of that? You know, those names being memorialized before God. Remember, they are the priests that minister to God. And so they would wear this in their, in their service, in their ministry, as they performed their duties as God's priests. And he says, this will be a memorial. What do you think, uh, you know, the significance may, may have been? You know, was it for the benefit of God or was it a, a benefit for the priest? Or you know, what is your thoughts, Brian? First thought was the Day of Atonement, okay, where the priest would be ministering to the Lord, but it was on behalf of the entire nation. Yeah, so he was serving as that mediator. He was making propitiation for the entire nation. So mm -hmm. he literally carried the entire nation on his shoulder, on his breastplate, as mm -hmm. he offered that sacrifice, first for himself and then for the nation to atone for their sins. Okay, someone else. That's a good good thought to bring out. Uh, a couple of thoughts that I you know, consider is one is a reminder that Israel was God's people. You know, you know, they are the chosen people of God. And so you know, as they you know, entered in to perform you know, the various uh, duties that related to God and to the nation, you know, it was a reminder that you know, they truly were the children of God. Uh, I, I think another is you think that you know, this kind of maybe ties more so with what Brian just said. You know, with when they're particularly performing specific sacrifices, you know, that have very specific purpose, and reminding the priest, reminding you know, reminding the high priest who's performing this duty, reminding them that they that you you are ministering yes to God, but also you're ministering on behalf of the nation of the people. It's not just about you. Yeah, it's about all it's about all these individuals that you know. Are represented by those names that they carry on the shoulder and on their heart, and so you think about the gravity, you know, of of being a high priest and performing the duties of a priest properly and correctly according to the pattern, uh, themselves keeping themselves clothed in holiness and purity, not just in a physical sense but spiritually as well. You know, when I think about that. That sobering thought, you know, uh, one uh, application that came to my mind in the sense of uh, one way we serve, and that is you take your prayers, you know, take, take your prayers to heaven's throne, you know, because the veil has been taken down and you have been cleansed by the blood and your robes are white because of Jesus, you know, you through your prayers. You know, enter the most holy place by faith. And so you think about your prayers, not just so much for yourself, but what about your prayers on behalf of others? What does James 5 say about the effectiveness of prayer? It avails much, but, what, but it's coming from what kind of priest? A righteous priest, yes. A righteous priest. And so you think about us, we are all priests, you know, ministering 
to God and ministering on behalf of others. And you see, our prayers take a very unique role in the sense that we pray on behalf of others, not just for physical things, but even more so perhaps for the spiritual concerns and needs of others and how important it is that, yes, you know, we, we bear before God and we need to remember, you know, who we are and what we're doing and who we're becoming, who we're approaching because we, we want our holiness, you know, to be maintained so that our prayers are the most effective that they possibly can be. And so you think, you know, when you pray on behalf of someone, you are bearing that name, you know, to heaven's throne. You're, you are, you are approaching not just a mercy seat built and placed on top of a golden box called the Ark of Covenant. You're, you are approaching the true mercy seat that's resides in heaven and God the Father and God the Son sit upon it. So you think about the yes, you know, the details here and like, you know, you know, perhaps somewhat tedious in our reading, you know, but think about what God is trying to say here about the importance of a priest, the importance of the role of a priest, and the importance of what you're doing and who you're doing it for. Another one to me thing that jumps out in chapter 28 is there in verse 36 through 38 when you've got the turban and you've got this golden engraved plate that's supposed to be placed on the turban. And what does that plate say? What's engraved on that gold plate? Holy to the Lord. It's all about holiness, isn't it? It's all about holiness. And everything that God set before the nation, whether with regard to their their personal life or whether there's their, the civil responsibilities or their worship to him, everything is to be a reflection and a communication of holiness. And so God has this plate put on to be worn on the high priest turban. Yeah. And, and we're told, you know, you know the, the, the importance of that one, he says, to take away the iniquity of the holy things to the sons of Israel consecrated. That's one aspect that is brought out. The other is to be acceptable before God. So two things are, are said about this plate. You need to wear this for these two reasons, God says. One, to take away the iniquity of the holy things, which the sons of Israel consecrate. And then two, to be accepted before the Lord. Simple question. What if Aaron did not wear the turban? Say it again. Right. Yeah, you take the example of the Abihu when they did when they did not show proper holiness, proper respect, and and what they did was profane. And so if if, if Aaron did not attire himself according to what God specifically said, you know, so we're talking about you know, specifics God has commanded here, and he and there's reasons why he expected everything with it. And you take the turban, for example. If he did not wear the turban, then he would not have been accepted before the Lord. 
And if he was not accepted by the Lord, even you know, take the Day of the Atonement. He's not wearing the turban when he, you know, on the Day of the Atonement. He goes in to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. What, what happens? Not only has he affected himself, well, what else? He's affected the nation. Yeah. You, know, you think about you know, the, the, the simple thing. God says, I want you to make this hat, and this is how you want to make it. And I want you to put this, this, this plate on it and have this engraving on it. And, and this is why I want you to do it. It was significant. Every detail was important to God. Anybody want to add anything else? Carrie, thank you. about you know, Exodus and, go, and, and Leviticus, all of these, you think, the, you know, doing what God said to communicate proper holiness. Yes? You were talking about the uh, turban and the consequences of not wearing that. Mm -hmm. Verses 31 to 35 talks about the robe of the ephod. Uh-huh. And verse 35 says, it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its tinkling may be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place before the Lord that he may not die. So, specifically the robe, but if he didn't wear it, right, he'd die. Yes. And so, you know, just because someone may think it's not important, if God says it is, it is. Well, chapter 29, you know, goes into, you know, the ordination and consecration of Aaron's sons as priests. Uh, it, it's going, of course, this is all the instruction, so it's not going on yet. So instruction of what they need to make, you know, and we come to the tire. Instruction regarding how, how to consecrate them, how to, how to you know, ordain them for this work. You know, it's going to last about, you know, about you know, seven days. Uh, there's going to be a number of, of, of offerings and sacrifice all have significance to that. And I just wanted to you know, kind of jump down, you know, to the end of chapter 29. You go through all of that instruction about... You know, what sacrifice you're to do, for what reason, sin offering, burnt offerings, wave offering, heave offerings, you know, you know, the sprinkling of blood here and the sprinkling of blood there, and even the eating of meat and the eating of bread. All of that is part of what will transpire when everything is ready to erect the tabernacle and, and, and begin, you know, observing the pattern that God has instituted. But in, at the end of chapter 29... 
after giving the instruction about these things, he then says, he says, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So you think about this whole thing we've been covering, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the furnishings, you know, all of this would be consecrated, so what, for what reason? Well, so the people will know God. They need to know God. And they need to know that this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Yeah. And so God, God is you know, sanctifying all of these different aspects of worship and livelihood and character so that they know him. And the kind of people they need, need to be. And the result of that, he says, and I will dwell among them. I am their Lord. I am the Lord their God, it says. He said, Moses, you do this. You instruct this. Make sure it's done correctly. Because ultimately, this is the big picture. You know, you know, that, that they need to know who I am. And who brought them out of Egypt. And that, so that I can dwell with them. And you think about, you know, once again, the imagery and the foreshadowing of Exodus and so many of the, the books of law. You know, Brother David Tirado here. You know, that you think of this idea of what God has done so that we will know him. You know, God has revealed Christ in the new covenant. And it's also that we will know him. And in knowing the Father and the Son and the Spirit, in turn, we become a holy people. In whom he dwells and we in him. Brother David. I just think it's interesting. And I apologize to go back to oh, chapter that's 28, uh, verse 3, when it mentions uh, that uh -huh. these people were filled, um, you know, by God with the skill to make these garments and the details. It's just not uh, regular Joe. These folks were given the skill by God to make these intricate right. um, pieces of clothing. I think that's an important point to bring out. And, of course, in chapter 31, that's brought out again. Two men are named specifically who were endowed with amazing uh, uh, knowledge and skill. And what struck me when I, with this thought, David, was this, that God supplied the people. He supplied his people with the resources and the skills they needed to do the work they were called to do. Think about that. God supplied. And he, he's asking them to do some amazing things in the desert here. They're out in the desert. And so he's going to have to empower, instill men with the ability and the knowledge to do this with the resources that God has made available to them. Remember, they, they basically plundered Egypt. And that's where all the, all this, all the precious metals and the, and the stones, the tear, all, this is all part of God's provision. God knew what he had in mind, but God is supplying his people with the resources and the skills they needed to do the job they were called to do. What about you and me? We are given the resources and the skills to do the job that we need to do as God's people. Yeah, first, Second Corinthians 9, you know, recently studied on Sunday morning, talks about God's ability to abound his grace. He, you know, he can supply the grace we need. You know, the seed for the sower and, and the multiplying of the heart. God is able to do that. Yeah. 
And you think about, just take the church, Ephesians, you know, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. What did, in Ephesians 4, what did he ordain, you know, in the body of Christ? What did he ordain so that the jobs would be accomplished? Right. And so he, he ordained and set aside ministers for the work that was before them. You know, take uh, 2 Timothy 3, talks about the inspiration of God's word, and you read through that, and the last bit of verse 17 is so that what? So that you and I will be what? Have different versions in the wording here. It's inspired, profitable, go through that, that's verse 16, so that you will what? So you'll be equipped for every good work. Some say furnished. Yeah. God, go back to what David brought out. When you look at, at this amazing task that is in the hands of the Israelites, and God had great expectations, but God's not, he's not expecting them to do anything that they can't do because he's providing for them everything they need to do what he needs them to do. It's true with us today. We have what we need to do the work that we are called to do as a body of believers, but also as individuals, God gives us the resources and the abilities to serve and to minister in holiness. And that's what we need to see ourselves doing. Uh, you think about in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where it talks about he's given us you know, all things pertaining to what? Life and godliness, you know, through a true knowledge of him who called us. You know, we have everything we need. God, God provides. You know, he, he's going to take care of us in, 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 uh, so that we can carry out the plan that he has before us. Brother John, would you, yeah, Cam. That's a, I'm glad you brought that's a good point to bring out. There was no one that had zero talents. You know, you know, and so we all have abilities, and we can take the ability we have to make the most of the opportunity that God gives us. I want to end in one a closing thought, and this kind of relates to kind of uh, carry bringing out the whole the pattern idea, the concept that runs you know, you know, throughout God's inspired word, both covenants. Which struck me, for example, you know, both in chapter 29 and chapter 30, when talking about some of the instruction and, let's say, let's say the, the recipe for the anointing oil. Yeah, that's one of the examples. You think of it and talk about and tell them how to do it. But then he says, okay, don't use this. You know, don't use this recipe in any manner that it was not intended to be used. And so, so as you take the anointing, that's just one of the examples. That, you know, so about three times he talks about, once he set this up, he's okay, this is what I need to do. And, but do not take this and misuse it. He says that about the altar of incense. The altar of incense was only to be used for what it was made for. The anointing oil that was to be used in the worship was to only be used for what it was made for. To the point that not only they were not allowed to, you know, Put that oil uh, on anyone or anything other than what God has said. But the way he says, you, you, you're not even allowed to use the same recipe. 
And think about it. Anything that God has sanctified, anything that God has set aside as holy, this is the way you need to do it. This is how you do it. Anything like that is not to be used in a manner that was not intended to be used. That's true today. When it comes to the church, the work of the church, everything that God has set apart and said, okay, this is the way I want you to do it. You know, we are not at liberty to go beyond God's instruction. Thank you very much for everyone's uh, sharing of your thoughts and, and, and your contribution.